I, I, I begin preaching this sermon with much fear and trepidation um, in a good way. I feel like the Lord has laid a lot on my heart, but I want to make sure that I don't ramble and take too long. I respect that some of you have roasts in the oven. Anybody have a roast in the oven? Nobody? I'll preach a long time. Great. Okay. So let me open in prayer for us, can I? Father, I thank you that you are here right now in our midst, in our worship. Your word says you are tabernacled upon the praises of your people. And right now, Father, we're asking that your spirit would be our teacher and that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, that we would know you more and that we would be able to embrace these truths that, Father, honestly, so often we forget. But embrace these truths that we're going to talk about this morning, that, Lord, we would be able to walk closer with you, we'd be able to uh, walk freer from sin, we'd be able to truly walk in the light of your presence and your glory and your grace, because that's really what it's all about, God. In this life, we choose to embrace your grace. So, Father, would you speak to our hearts, go beyond my words, and Spirit of God, you do the speaking to every heart here this morning in Jesus' name. Awesome. How many of you have a bulletin? Wave your bulletin. Wave your bulletin. Wave your bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, you need to have a bulletin. And if you don't have a bulletin, I'm not saying rush and get one. Maybe take a piece of paper out of your Bible, borrow one from someone. But I would like to have you do some assessing right now. Are you ready for this? Here's what I'd like you to do. Do this and answer this question in bullet form. How are you doing in your walk with Christ. Don't give a one-word one answer, fine. Come on, us guys, isn't that what we do sometimes? Wife asks, so how is your day? Fine. Come on, I, I want you, we're, we're, we're communicating something here with, with the Lord. How are you doing in your walk with Christ? Bullet form, just answer that question in bullet form. Now, why you're doing it, because I'm going to give you a little bit of time. While you're doing that, I want to say, pers honestly, personal assessment can truly be very helpful. However, at times, eh, not so much so. I want to share two quick stories with you. In Fortune magazine, probably about 20 years ago, um, the author of that article told a story of an influential executive of a large company who is in a long DMV line. Can you already sympathize with this man? Oh, he was in a long DMV line, and he asks his wife this question out of frustration. Why do they allow me to wait in such a long line? Don't they know who I am? And his wife rather bluntly says, yes, dear, they do. You're the son of a plumber who got lucky one day. Can you say, ouch? Sometimes honest evaluations can be a little bit painful. Here's another one. This is when Harry Truman was thrust into the presidency upon the death of FDR, and a man by the name of Sam Rayburn pulled him aside and was quoted saying this to Harry Truman. From here on out, you're going to have lots of people around you. They'll try to put up a wall around you and cut you off from any ideas but theirs. They'll tell you what a great man you are, Harry, but you and I both know you ain't. <laughs> wow. Now, I didn't know Harry Truman personally. I wasn't born during his presidency. I was born afterwards, in case you were wondering how old I was, after. But this, honestly, this is your personal evaluation, not someone else's about you. So be gracious. But I want you to answer that question. How are you doing in your walk with Christ? And while you're continuing to write if you are. Let me review just a bit. Last week, we looked at this passage in Romans chapter 7, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 14, and it said this, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. You see, those who are under law, they're using the standard of the law to gain a better standing before God. Consequently, their focus ends up being on human effort, 
Galatians 3.3. You may remember this. Paul tells the Galatians who had come to Christ through his preaching of the gospel, but some Judaizers had come in and started preaching law. And he said this to them. He said, who bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ was portrayed as crucified. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Really? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? This is what it means to be under law. Trying to gain a better standing before God by means of his standard, the law. And it's all about human effort. Grace, however, is not that whatsoever. Grace is God's provision for our right standing before God. There's nothing that we do We cannot do more to gain a better standing before God. The gospel is surrender to the God who paid everything and did everything necessary for you to have a right standing with him for forgiveness of sins, etc. So God's grace provides our right standing before God. His grace daily then empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live for him. So Why am I even having you do this evaluation? Let's go back to that. I'm going to tie in what I just said with this evaluation. There are basically two ways in which you could have answered that question. Some of you may have combined the two, but there are two basic ways. Here's the first way you could have answered that question. How am I doing in my walk with Christ? Your answer could have been, you know what? I'm doing better. I tend to lust. Less, or I tend to have anger issues less. You know what? I'm, I'm doing better. I don't gossip as much and throw people under the bus as much. You know what? I'm doing better. I'm not as proud. In fact, I think I'm very humble. Actually, let's scratch that last one. <laughs> and, and it's all about this person, their Christian life is summed up by avoiding sin, that is, obeying rules, laws. Evaluations can tend to focus, their evaluations can tend to focus on, am I sinning, sinning less? The problem here is that you gauge your Christian life by the law. Now, I would venture to say that many of us, and myself included at times, can see myself from that perspective. But that is the mentality that says, I am under law. Now, I'm choosing this little exercise because sometimes when, some, when a person preaches and we hear the word, we say, yeah, 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 yeah. That has everything to do with my spouse and nothing to do with me. And somehow we've got to just take these truths and, and kind of open our eyes and say, wow, you know what, maybe, just maybe, this has something to do with me. So look again at your paper. And how did you answer that question? How am I doing in my walk with Christ? Is the sum of your Christian life avoiding the do-nots? If that's the case... You indeed may have come out of Egypt, referring to my analogy last week, but you have yet to taste the fullness of what it is to live in the promised land. And you are wandering, as Israel did, in the desert, refusing by faith to embrace the precious promises that God gave them and gives to you. And it's outlined in the New Testament. And Paul is hitting in the book of Romans on one truth after another that we can hear and hear. And yes, okay, so we've left Egypt and it's as if uh, I'm good. And we know some of these truths, but we are failing to embrace them every moment of every day. Church, you are not under law. You are under grace. Now, the second way to answer this would look something like this, something like this. You know what? I think I'm growing in faith. You know, just the other day, I encountered a difficulty. Instead of worrying, I, I you know what? I am going to believe God in this. And and I'm going to be bold when I pray. And two days later, let me tell you what God did. I think I'm growing in faith. Perhaps you wrote down something like this. 
I find that when I sit down to read the Word, I'm more excited than I used to be. And, and there's just this growing desire to learn truth and experience truth. I want to I live this life, and I want to experience God's precious promises. And I look forward to that. And, and maybe you even wrote down an example of, of how that happened. Or perhaps you're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm really finally getting it. I'm growing in love. My relationship with my daughter that was estranged for so many years, God's healing it because I'm finally understanding what it is to love my daughter. I find I'm not criticizing her, but I'm, I'm praising her, and I'm looking for every opportunity to, to praise her. You know, someone who writes like that and evaluates their walk with Christ like that, they are recognizing what it is to be under grace. My Christian life is not summed up by the do's and don'ts. And honestly, when you look at the law, the moral law specifically, it is filled with a lot of don'ts and only a few do's. But my life is not characterized by what I don't do. And I used the analogy last week about the backyard. And in the backyard, the law is that electric fence. Now, I say electric fence. It's not going to kill you, of course, but the electric fence for us believers is there, and it just simply says, this is your backyard. This is this backyard. This is your inheritance and everything that I have for you. Experience the joy and the blessings of living in my kingdom, and yes, you're going to find it's hard at, at times, and yes, you're going to need to cut the grass every week and pull the weeds, but I want you to live in this backyard and enjoy it. Stop hanging out by the electric fence. You walk up to the fence, man, I wonder just how strong the charge is on this, and you touch it, right? And many of us live our Christian life like that. What would happen if I sinned like this? And we, we test God. We, we, we want to know these boundaries. And church, your life doesn't consist hanging out by the boundaries of your backyard. It's living in the backyard and experiencing the grace of God. So, the Christian life is summed up by growing in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's not summed up by not committing the acts of the flesh, which is also Acts 5, right before the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 7, 6, it says, but now by dying to what once bound us. The law had bound us. And the reason why it bound us was because we were lost sinners constantly testing the boundaries and actually living outside of that backyard. But we were constantly stumbling into sin. We were sin addicts compelled to touch the, that, that electric fence and it bound us, this, this compulsion to sin and the resultant condemnation. And Paul says, we were, and he includes himself in this, and he gives his personal testimony of this actually in verses 7 through 13. But the law bound me because it condemned me. And he says, we have been released from the law. Remember, the law as a whole, we have been released from. Because as a whole, which every Jew viewed, the Jews didn't necessarily view it as the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil or judicial law. They viewed the law as the law. It comes to us as a whole. You break it in one point, you break it in all the others. It comes to us as a system. The system also called the Old Covenant, Hebrews 8 says, that has become obsolete. We have been released from it. Now, people have mistakenly thought, well, if I've been released from it, then the moral law has no bearing on my life whatsoever. And that would not be true. Let me just give you a, a little illustration here that I experienced last week. Um, because of what Kate went through this past week, she spent several days over at our place and uh, between Meredith and I kind of tag-teaming, we were watching the two little ones. And I discovered that there were two ways in which I watched Rusty 
and Cooper. The first way is I've got to get something done. I'm really busy. So I'm going to sit down here in this room, which, by the way, I barricaded any exits so that little Cooper would not wander off into the garage or wander outside and, you know, into the kitchen, God forbid, uh, you know. So there I am. I'm sitting in the, in the couch, and every now and then I, I look up, but I am busy with what I'm doing, and the essence of my interaction with Rusty and Cooper in those moments went something like this. Rusty, don't put that crayon in your brother's ear. Cooper, take Rusty's hand out of your mouth, and don't stand on the table. Rusty, listen, Superman doesn't fly because of his cape, so could you please come down from the hutch? You know, those types of things, are, don't, do, don't do that, don't, don't kill yourself, don't maim yourself, don't, 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 don't. The other way was when I decided, you know what, I'm not going to be busy, and I'm just going to take some time out, and I would find myself on the carpet playing with them, with a little bucket of toys that got dumped in the middle of the floor <laughs> that took half an hour to clean up when they were done. Okay, not a quite as much, but we playing with them or, or reading books to them, interacting in this way. So do you see now the difference? Many Christians have this view that God is so busy and his only interaction with us is, don't do that. Please don't do that. Take your brother's hand out of your mouth. And this is our view of our walk with Christ. And I would suggest that if that's how you view your walk with Christ, it probably showed up on that little eval you just did. But the truth is, under grace, we get to enjoy this relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that as I interacted with Cooper and Rusty on the, the carpet, I never had to say, don't put the crayon in your brother's ear or anything else. Don't climb on the table. Now and then I did, but the essence of my interaction was loving on them and them experiencing, hopefully experiencing their grandpa's love for them. And so my question this morning to you is this, which view of God do you have? little reality check here. Many Christians, many of us, we struggle with our view of God. We struggle with it. We wrestle with guilt and condemnation. Maybe we feel we shouldn't, but it's still there. It's still there. We have feelings of unworthiness before God as if why or how can I come to God in prayer? Because every time I begin to pray, I get these reminders of my sins, and I feel so unworthy. And it's, it's not just this sense of unworthiness, but we also begin to feel, we begin to experience feelings of rejection from God. Why would he love me? And, and I prayed about this prayer, and, and it didn't happen. But this person over here, they prayed, they got it. So God, what's up with this? Do you just not love me as much as the next person? No, church, these are real feelings that we have that we project to God. And I'm going to tell you this, those feelings are not based on truth. They are based on lies. And so Christ, Paul here, he, he calls us to embrace this truth. You're not under law. You are under grace. Now, last week, I had mentioned to you that <coughs> some respond to these very real issues that as Christians we go through these feelings of rejection, unworthiness, guilt, condemnation, etc. Their answer is, well, no wonder you have such feelings of guilt. It's because you still live according to the moral law. You need to get rid of the moral law. After all, the law has become obsolete. You are no longer bound, but rather released from the law. And so their interpretation of that is all aspects of the law, moral, civil, and ceremonial, they're out the window. As we now move into the New Testament, we do not ever look back at the Old Testament's moral law and feel in any way obligated to obey it. We've been freed from that. So in essence, 
The reason why you struggle with guilt is, feel, is because you feel compelled to obey God's law, including his moral law. They would say, oh, I believe, and by the way, the name that's given to this group of people, and, and church, trust me, this group of people is large, and it is growing, and it is taking root within what has commonly in our day been called the Grace Reformation. The Grace Reformation. Now, I am amazed and blessed by anyone who would call us back to grace. But please, by all means, do that with a balance of Scripture. And that's the problem here. Does God's Word say, let's get rid of the moral law? We don't need it anymore. Actually, it's the moral law that's your problem. Now, these antinomians would reject that title because an antinomian against the law. They would say, I'm not against the law. The law is for sinners and unbelievers to convict them of sin and lead them to Christ. But for the believer, I have no use for it whatsoever. Actually, let me show you. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is what they would say. And I'm, I, I want us to touch on this because it is, is profoundly important that we understand the place of the moral law as New Testament believers. We are hearing voices, those online, books, YouTube, you name it. You're no longer obligated to follow the moral law. Get rid of the moral Actually, the moral law is your problem. You're bound up by it. So get rid of it is their answer. And what this is producing in the church is lawlessness. What this is producing in the church is a people who want to follow Jesus with their old life with them. He's going to forgive me. As a matter of fact, he's forgiven all of my sins, past, present, and future. So if I stumble into sin, it's no big deal. I just want to love Jesus. And they are missing this so crucial truth because the church is moving more and more in this direction of embracing sin. To the point, maybe you've heard of this, that there are those who, when, when this issue of homosexuality during the Obama administration really came to the forefront, I, I read articles in the newspaper by well-known journalists in the Orlando Sentinel, and they would say things like this, Christians many times uh, condemn homosexuality. And if they're going to do that and point to Leviticus, then they're going to also need to stop eating shellfish. I mean, have you heard that argument? And it's because they're uneducated. They don't understand. Perhaps they've been sitting in a Grace Reformation church or an antinomian, a church that preaches antinomianism, and hey, let's just get rid of the law. Well, by the way, even if you do, there's plenty in the New Testament that speaks against homosexuality. I don't know if you've ever read anyone who is a homosexual, practices it, and claims to be a Christian. You will be appalled at how they treat the numerous passages in the New Testament that speak against homosexuality. And the theology and the hermeneutic they use is like, what are you, this is terrible. But it's in Princeton Seminary, it's, it's filtering into the church at every direction, and there are many well-meaning pastors, theologians in our church today who are going in the wrong direction. Let's throw out the law. It has no application in our daily lives. Is this true? Is this true? First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, starting with verse 8, it says this. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which we entrust, which he entrusted to me. And those who would say, see, the proper use of the law is only for sinners, 
fails to read the last part that I read to you, or whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of our blessed God. Notice that he talks about the law, and when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. But how does he refer to it in the very next verse? We know that law, not the law, but law. There's no definite article here. And the reason why he does that is because he's just referring to law in general. The purpose of law in general is to tell us when we do wrong. Can I say this? I can be, as a neighbor, I can live my life according to the laws of this land. I cannot steal from my neighbor. I can go the proper speed limit in my neighborhood. I can follow all the HOA deeds and regulations. I can observe the city statutes, the state statutes, and federal statutes that have any bearing to do with me, and I can still be a terrible neighbor, an unloving neighbor. I can still be mean in how I interact with my neighbors. You see, I am not a good neighbor just because I keep the laws. The laws are the do nots, and they do not define me as a good neighbor. And that is all that Paul is saying. The law tells me where the boundaries are, and when you go beyond the boundaries, you're a lawbreaker, you're a rebel. Don't do that. Can I just ask, when you became a Christian, from that time to today, has any of you lied? Any of you? Can I just see a show of hands? Any of you lied? You then, my friends, must be a liar. You have lied, and the law must apply to you. You see? The law, Paul is not saying, let's get rid of the law. Neither is he saying, let's get rid of law in general. It's just that the law does not make me a good neighbor. It does not make me a good Christian. What makes me and transforms me is not the law. It is grace that changes me. It is God's grace that does this. Holiness is not merely defined by what it is not. Love, as well, is not merely defined by do nots. But may I also say that if you want a definition of love, you can go to 1 Corinthians 13, and it says love is patient, love is kind, but it is not rude, it is not easily angered, and it is not selfish. It does believe. Many times we want our Christian life to be defined by the do-nots. And if that's you, today I'm calling you to grace. You see, the answer cannot be, let's get rid of the moral law. To live under grace, you've got to get rid of the moral law. Do you know that every example in the New Testament that Paul or any other author gives when they're talking about the law has, we have been released from the law, we are no longer obligated to follow it. Every single example, and there's no exception, the examples are ceremonial in nature. Food laws, festivals, new moon celebrations, Sabbaths, circumcision, and the like. Sacrifices. Because these are the shadows that have now been fulfilled in Christ. And so we are no longer obligated to follow them. There are no examples of Paul or any other author saying, God once said, do not murder, but it's okay now. God once said, but you can do it now. As a matter of fact, what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is Paul saying, you've heard it said, do not murder. He doesn't follow that by saying, it's okay now. He says, but if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. He goes on to say, you do well in not committing adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I am telling you, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, you got to go deeper. Stop following just the letter of the law. Because to love my neighbor is not simply defined by do not commit adultery. And it happens when I lust and when I treat the person of the opposite sex, uh, 
inappropriately. And, and he says, go deeper. This is what love is all about. The second thing, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 18 and 19, he says, whoever keeps the moral laws and teaches others to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of God. How do you get around that? We do keep them and we do teach them. Thirdly, Paul quotes the Old Testament moral law with authority. Honor your father and mother. Fourthly, if the moral law is set aside and all that remains is the law of Christ, which they would say is love your neighbor as yourself, then my question is, what is love? What is loving? They would respond, well, what's loving would be determined by the Spirit in me. So the Spirit is going to show me what is loving. Interesting. What you have now done is you have reduced morality to your personal opinion of what you think the Spirit is showing you. You see, that's lawlessness. We can just decide for ourselves. Is abortion right or wrong? And one Christian, because of the lies that they have heard, would say, well, according to the New Testament and what the Spirit of God is showing me, I think abortion should be okay. After all, the rights of the woman, etc. I, mean, I think that's right. That's what the Spirit of God is showing me. And another one, seeking to follow the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, would say, but wait a second. I would appeal to God's word, both in Old and New Testament, and abortion is clearly wrong. The Holy Spirit is showing me that it's wrong. And so one would say it's right, another would say it's wrong. They both would appeal to the Spirit. Well, who's right and who's wrong? Now we've reduced ethics that we are to live by to subjectivity, to whatever I feel, to my personal opinion. Church, you know that that is where the church is moving in our generation. And that is where we must pull back the reins and say we cannot. Fifthly, we may say, well, God, and therefore his holiness, it never changes. Therefore, neither do, do his moral standards. Right is always right. Wrong is always wrong. God and his, his ways are not relative. His moral law remains for us in the New Testament. Number six, Hebrews 8.10 says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36.27 says, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is what God has written now on my heart, and I can prove it by looking at the Scriptures. Why? Because what's there in both Old and New Testament with regard to the moral law has now been impressed on my spirit. And guess what, church? I now have the Spirit who motivates me and yearns within me to follow Christ and to love my neighbor as myself and love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength according to His Word. And it's written down and it's plain to see. So how do we deal? And this is where I want to spend the rest of my time. How do we deal with these very real issues of guilt, feelings of rejection from God, our belief that we can't measure up somehow to God's standards of holiness? The antinomians say, get rid of the law, get rid of the standards, God's moral law. And I'm asking, is this really right? According to the word of God, it's not. Logically, is it? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little illustration here and from this kind of spring into really challenging us what it means to live under grace. As an unbeliever, one who is lost in your sin, you are like the person who is living in a basement. In this basement, there is no light. It is just darkness. You love to eat in this basement. Your problem is that you leave, you leave plates of unfinished food everywhere. But it's no big deal, and you're never reminded of it because, guess what? It's dark. You can't see the food. Every now and then, you hear the scampering of little feet. I'm going to keep going. You are wondering, what is that noise I hear? And your response is, I can't see it. No big deal. And you continue to live in the darkness and the 
stench of this basement. But one day, one glorious day, I call it glorious, but you were horrified because you found the light switch. And you turned the light switch on and you looked at the basement and you had a coronary. And you said, oh my goodness, I can't believe all of these plates of food and, and it's all over the floor. And how did I get so many rats in my basement? And you're terrified. You hate rats and so you're just up there and you refuse to go down the steps anymore. You're wondering how did I even find it at the top of these steps? I don't know. But you're, you're frozen with fear. And you suddenly remember, yes, my neighbor was sharing with me her story. And she had a rat problem, and she used an exterminator. I've got his name in my phone here. And you start scrolling through, yes, that's the name, and you press it, and you make the call, and your exterminator comes and saves the day. What a glorious day. And the exterminator comes in and kills all of the rats, gets rid of them, cleans up, and cleans up your mess, scrubs it, and you look at that basement, and it's like, this is awesome. But there was a fear, a lingering fear. The moment you saw all of those rats, you were so terrified. It like scarred your mind, I guess. And there is this lingering fear. What if the rats come back? Oh, my goodness. What am I going to do? And this fear of the rats just comes to you like nightmares. How do you deal with this problem? Here's the antinomian solution. Turn off the light and never turn it on again. You can't see the problem. No big deal. But you see, that's the way you used to live. That is not the answer now. Here's the answer. The answer is grace. Translated into this illustration that I'm sharing with you right now, I'm going to tell you this. Leave the light on. If you leave it off, you're going to forget, did I eat down here? Did I leave my plate of food down here? I want to know. Leave the light on. If you see any rats, you call the exterminator right away. If not, you're going to have another infestation. Leave the light on. But here's my other suggestion to you. I would invite you to come out of the basement. And let me share with you the three stories of this mansion that is now yours. The first room you come into is the kitchen as it moves into the dining room. From now on, this is where you will eat. You do not eat downstairs. You will eat right here. The cleanup is easy. Leave the light on. Now, let me, in this grand tour, let me show you the living room and the bathrooms and the bedrooms and the attic and the backyard. And yes, the electrified beds. But and it, and it's, you're thinking, this is mine now? Yes. You mean I don't have to just live in the basement? No, of course not, but leave the light on. And as you leave the light on, now let me tell you about all of these good things that you have inherited that has been given to you. You see, I am not telling you to keep the lights off. I'm not telling you let's get rid of the moral law. Instead, what I'm going to do is share with you your inheritance. You see, our problem with these issues of rejection and inadequacies and unworthiness and guilt is not the law. If you were to look at Romans chapter 7, the problem is not the law, it is sin that deceived me. Hoping that by following the law, I would gain life. And that is a lie. Sin deceived me. The problem, my point is this, the problem is not the law. That is the moral law. And those are the examples he gives in chapter 7. They all have to do with the moral law. The problem is not the law. My friends, the problem is your view of God. 
It is this terror of the rats, if you will. How do we deal with that? Now, let me just share with you God's solution, and it is completely rooted and grounded in grace. The first thing, as I mentioned, we keep the light on so you can see. We stop eating downstairs and leaving our food around. Is this, however, the essence of your new existence? Of course not. Of course it's not. You have an entire inheritance in this house that you get to enjoy. The next thing, I want to introduce you to the upstairs. And in these places that I'm going to call God's grace, we will learn to embrace his grace. Here's what you're going to find. And, and I have several things written down. Truths. They're all truths. They're not things that you do. They are things that you believe and you embrace and you become rock solid in. Because the reason we struggle with guilt and unworthiness and feeling God rejects me has nothing to do with the law and everything to do with me believing lies. The greatest goal of the devil is to feed you a lie and get you to believe it. Why? Because he's the father of lies. That's his native tongue. That is how he speaks. That's how he spoke and deceived the rest of the angels who followed him in their campaign against God, and he ca cast them out of heaven. This is how he deceived Eve and Adam, and this is how he deceives you and me today. And it wasn't just before we came to Christ. It is even as we follow Christ, he wants to continue to feed you true, uh, Excuse me, lies. So every one of these I'm going to give you is a truth. Get, number one, get rid of the mindset that God's standard in any way impacts your standing. That was taken care of by the cross. Never forget that. Your standing before God is sure. It does not change because of your sin. Your sins truly were forgiven past, present, and future. The cross established this. Christ does not have to die for you every day. He did it once, and it was good enough for all of eternity. And so we, we ground ourselves in this truth. Christ died for me. The cross applies to me every moment of every day. Do not ever leave that truth. Grasp it. Don't just grab the hem of it, but the whole, all of it. And we're going to need to, as we go through Romans, we're going to need to unwrap this more and more and more. And we're going to come back to grace and unwrap that more and more and more. And this is what Paul does. And it's, and it's just this constant reminder of who we are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us. And the fact that we stand now in his righteousness and not my own. Truth number two. God's complete forgiveness as a result of the cross. God's complete forgiveness of all of my sins. Romans 8, 1. That there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am worthy before God because Christ has made me worthy. You see... That is where we get hung up. I am not worthy. Why do I think I'm not worthy? Well, look at my sins, and it's like, why do I keep doing this? How can I be so stupid? And we beat ourselves up, and we are harsher on ourselves than God is. Maybe that should tell us something. And, and we, we have this mindset that when we are before God in prayer, how unworthy we are. Why should I even bring my petitions to God? He sees my sin and we fail to recognize that the cross of Christ has washed away all of my sins, canceled out every accusation, every accusation that comes against us from either the law or Satan himself, which means accuser. And we listen, and, and, and Romans 8.1 reminds us that there is none of that, no more condemnation, and that I am worthy. But you see, I am only worthy, not because I do good things, 
Not because I have been sowing into the law and I keep following the law and I find my right standing by the law. Absolutely not. I am worthy for one reason only. Christ has made me worthy. I stand now in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. There is absolutely nothing that the accuser of the brothers can say against me and point to my sin that should make me feel unworthy. Church, we are not led by feelings. You know this. We are led by facts, by truth, and by faith in the facts. Faith in these truths. Rock solid. No condemnation. No accusation of the enemy that can ever stand. And it was for this reason that he was cast out of heaven At the moment of the cross, Revelation chapter 12, now your salvation has come. And the accuser of the brothers was hurled down, overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, the application of that blood. I am forgiven. Do you feel unworthy while you worship or while you pray? I'm going to challenge you. The answer is not getting rid of the law. The answer is holding on to these truths that I am worthy because Christ has made me worthy. And every time you feel unworthy or so sinful, remind yourself of this truth. Christ is worthy and he has made me worthy. Now, these last two truths, I realize that a sermon could be given to each one. But they are so crucial, so important. God's discipline is good and loving. That is a truth. Rome, excuse me, Hebrews 12, 6 says that he disciplines those he loves. We cannot say that as Christians, God no longer punishes or or disciplines us. In Hebrews 12, both of those words, punishment and discipline, are applied to us. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 54.9 says that God will no longer be angry with his people. When you came to Christ, he dispensed with the anger. Why? Well, number one, let's understand John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And Ephesians 2.3, we were by nature objects of wrath. But you see, Christ, when he died for you on the cross, he satisfied Christ alone. The song we just sang, he satisfied the wrath of God. His, His atonement was completely sufficient to remove your sins, the stain of sin, the condemnation against you that stood opposed to you from the law. And now in Christ, In Christ, God's wrath has been fully satisfied. And he promises you this, I will never be angry with you again. In Christ. You may have gone down I-4. And if you've gone down I-4 going north, you will see a billboard that said God is not angry. And it is put out by one of those churches that would fit into this Grace Reformation concept. And that there's no need for the moral law. There's no need for confession of sins, um, et cetera, et cetera. And And that God does not discipline his people anymore. The problem with that is that statement is not balanced. There are plenty of scriptures that say that God is angry and his wrath is poured out upon unbelievers. And by nature, I, before I came to Christ, I was an object of that wrath. But Christ rescued me from that. So the truth, though, is in Christ, God is not angry with me. God is not angry with you. And when he disciplines us, now, let's understand that when punishment or discipline is meted out, it is, you, it is done for two reasons. One of two reasons. Number one, it is done for punishment. We call that punitive. When someone goes to jail, 
they are being punished. The other aspect of punishment or discipline is corrective in measure. For us as believers, the punitive has been set aside. Christ paid for that punishment. Discipline comes to us only in this form to bring correction. Now, understand this then. If God's purpose in disciplining you is simply to help you avoid this sin and pursue Him in this passionate, in this grace, in all of the blessings that we've inherited from Him, if this is His heart, once your heart has changed, He wants you to enjoy His grace. This is the very reason for the discipline. The discipline gets our attention. The discipline is not because, man, you really ticked God off, and you really think that right now you're going to ask me for something? Forget it. That is what earthly fathers may do. I'm sorry. You, you broke your promise. I will never give you the keys to the car again. But when our heart changes, which is what God is looking for, there is no need for him to discipline us further. The discipline is to lead us to repentance. The heart of God is not one of anger and wrath. It is one of love, kindness, and graciousness. You see, by the cross, the disposition of God has changed. It is not wrath. It is love. You know what disposition? Disposition is a person's attitude, how they view someone. Your disposition, you may have waked up and you were in a mood, and your disposition is one of being grumpy. God's dispo- God does not ro- wake up on the wrong side of the bed, church. God loves us to the fullest extent imaginable. His love is never failing because his love is infinite. I, I can't even begin to fathom what that is like. But you see, if his love for you is infinite, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to cause him to love you more And neither is there anything that you can do, including sin, that would in some way cause him to love you less. Absolutely impossible. His disposition to you is one of graciousness. Now, you may say, wait a second, Pastor Mike. You said you were going to be talking about grace, and right now you're talking about graciousness. Grace is what God does for us, right? And I would suggest to you, no, actually, the Greek word charis means both graciousness, the disposition of God, and grace. So when I'm talking about grace right now, I am not just talking about what God does and all that he offers us in his inheritance. I'm talking about his attitude towards you. This is what needs to change in our mind, how we view God. God, what is your disposition? How do you view me right now? Because if I were you, I'd be pretty ticked. I'd be frustrated. I would be angry. I would be folding my arms saying, really, Mike, again? Are you serious? But that is not God's attitude toward you. Now, I'm going to conclude with this. The last truth, and there's others that we could touch on, but the last one I want to focus on is this. Now, you might, well, I'm just going to share it with you. God is a giddy giver. God is a giddy giver. Now, for us men, that might rub us the wrong way. What do you mean God is giddy? Okay, I can understand my wife and my daughters, they can get, get, get giddy, but I'm not giddy. Come on. And I'm going to tell you guys, you know, good mask that you're wearing right now, but I can guarantee you on Christmas morning, you're giddy. Christmas morning, we would gather our family together, 9 o'clock. We would have our devotional love, our time, and our singing, and we would sing happy birthday to Jesus, and then we would take all of the Christmas presents that are under the Christmas tree, and we would take them, and we would sit around, and we'd have one or two distributing them, and then your presents would be right there in front of you, and we'd just go one after the other around the room again and again and again until all the presents are gone. And so what would you say, dads? If your daughter were sitting there and looking at it, and they would say, so disappointed. Dad, Mom, 
you know that I need a new pair of pants. The only pair of pants I have are these floods. Do you know what floods are? When I was a kid, it was explained to me this way. It's when your shoes are having a party, but your pants aren't invited. That's the way it, it was shared with me, okay? <laughs> you, okay, so you're walking around like this, and you're saying, I've grown a little bit, Mom and Dad. Can you get me a new pair of pants? And here it is, Christmas. What an opportunity. Buy me a new pair of pants. And you say to your sweetheart, why are you so disappointed? And, you, and she would say, well, I just don't see a new pair of pants anywhere here. I wanted jeans. And there's something inside of you, and well, what you do say is, but sweetheart, they're all wrapped. How can you tell? Well, I can just tell. And inside you're thinking, not only did I get her a new pair of jeans, but I got her this awesome skirt that she's going to love. And everywhere she goes, she's, she's got new outfits from the get-go. And she's going to love this. And yet, as Christians, we can, wow, God, really? This is, this is all? This is it? And we have this wrong mindset. But God is a giddy giver. Now, I take that from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, that says God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what on earth, you might think, does that have to do with God being a supposed giddy giver? That word, that word cheerful is the Greek word hilaros, we get the, the literal word in our English, hilarious. We are told to be hilarious or giddy givers. And my suggestion to you is God would never tell us to do something that he doesn't do already. So if God's going to tell you to be a hilarious giver, it's because he himself is a hilarious giver. If we sit there at Christmas and we can hardly wait, come on, open the present. You're going to love this. It's awesome. And you can hardly wait until your child unwraps that present. That is God when all of his grace and all of his inheritance. Now, you got to see this. You want to see the backyard and the place that, that I got you? You are going to love it. Let me come on with me. You see on some of these shows where they start showing them the new house they're giving them, and you can feel like, man, that is awesome. That is God showing you the vastness and the awesomeness of this inheritance of his grace that he gives to you. Why on earth would we sit there at Christmas? Wow, God, I just, I just can't believe it. Where's the new pair of jeans? But wait, wait, you haven't unwrapped it yet. Wait. When you are there in prayer and you're wondering, God, where is this? I've been praying. Wait, wait, I can hardly wait. Next week, you're going to be, no, God, but I think I need it now. But, uh, See, if I bring it next week, it's gonna, everything's going to come together, and it's, you're going to be like, God, this is amazing. You perfectly worked this out. I, I could never have thought a better way to do it. God is a giddy giver. He loves to give. He loves to pour out uh, answers to our prayers. He loves to see it when our backs are pressed up against the wall, and it's like, oh, just, just wait a little bit longer here. Wait a little bit longer. I've not abandoned you. I love you so much, but can you wait? Cry out to me. Let me hear that cry of faith. There it is. There it is. Yes. You just wait. Here it comes. This is the heart of God as he rejoices over his people with singing Zephaniah 3.17. That is the heart of the God that you serve. Where is there any place for the sense of unworthiness? For the sense of, God, you must not love me as much as the next. God, have you abandoned me? God, where are you in my life? Are you still angry with me? Is this why you refuse to hear my prayers and answer me? And God is up in heaven saying, no, no, but you don't understand what I'm doing here. It's, it's so complicated. But if you could believe, and if you could just trust me right now, there's something so awesome I'm about to do. I need to hear your faith. Can you come before me again in faith, in total dependency upon me? And then can you wait for my answer? I'm about to give it. It's going to blow you away. It is so awesome. That is the heart of God, church. Satan wants you to believe lies. He doesn't want you to grasp truth 
and at best maybe the edge of the hem, but certainly not the whole. Today, my invitation is to you is this. Embrace his grace. Can you stand with me? Father, if there is something inside of us that feels as if we do not measure up, when we find ourselves comparing ourselves with others, we fall short. When we find ourselves comparing ourselves to your word, we fall short. And if there is this lingering guilt, this lingering condemnation, these lingering feelings of rejection, of unworthiness that keep us from embracing your grace fully. Spirit of God, I am needing you to show us, any of us, you show us, God. You impress this upon us. And would you teach us again your love? Would you teach us again how to persevere in prayer? Would you teach us again to rejoice in this amazing grace that you have poured out and lavished upon us from heaven? And may you teach us what it truly is to fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with you. We trust you, God. We trust you.